Hi, I'm Simon Drew, and you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes of the show, as well as articles and information about my one-on-one alignment coaching, then you can head to my website. It's simonjedrew.com. If you do have the means to support the show, then I'd love to see you in my Patreon community. Just go to patreon.com forward slash simonjedrew, where you'll also get access to over 240 episodes recorded before 2020. But for now, enjoy the show. Hey everybody, thank you so much for spending your time with me here on the Practical Stoic Podcast. Now, something you've noticed uh, probably uh, over the past few months is I've been really interested in in diving into this idea of living in agreement with nature, uh, which is, you might say it's the Stoic theology, it's the Stoic metaphysics, it's, it's this really deep idea of how do we connect ourselves with everything that is. Um, and, and, you know, I've been so fascinated with, with, yeah, with the theology of Stoicism, trying to figure it out and not just figure it out for what we have in the texts, but to figure out the spirit of the theology of the philosophy, you know, and how can we overlay that over, um, today's society and today's current beliefs and, 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 and values. And so it's, it's such an interesting avenue to go down. But today's guest really, you know, when I had this conversation, he just pushed me over the line and, and made me think this is something that I really need to dedicate myself to because I, I don't know if you can divorce the theology of Stoicism from the general philosophy of Stoicism. And so anyway, our guest today is none other than the Associate Professor from the Norwegian School of Theology, Religion and Society, Glenn Wehus. Now, Glenn was recommended to me by uh, Harold Kavli, uh, one of my uh, former guests as well. And I'm so grateful that he recommended Glenn to come on the show because this was just such a fascinating conversation for me. And I know that you guys are going to find so much value in it. And uh, I'm really fortunate enough as well that this was uh, Glenn's first major appearance in the Stoic community on a podcast. And, uh, and so really, really grateful that he came on the show and shared his wisdom. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him before we jump into the show. But his main scholarly interests are related to the cultures of the ancient Mediterranean world, including the Greek language, both as a language system in itself and as a tool for understanding the theology of the New Testament. Another main interest is the philosophical traditions of these ancient cultures, in particular Stoicism and the Stoic teacher and former slave Epictetus. In general, he is fascinated by the points of contact between language, history, theology, religion, geography, and social aspects, the complex matrix which together makes up what we call culture. So that's a little bit more about Glenn, and I'm going to put links in the show notes to where you can find his stuff online. But uh, uh, sit back and enjoy this really fascinating discussion with Professor Glenn Wehus. Glenn, I'm really excited to have you here today, as you know. um, And I just want to, from the start of the show, give you an opportunity um, if you just want to introduce yourself, uh, tell myself and the audience uh, when they listen to this, uh, who you are, what you do. And, um, and before I get you to do that, I also want to uh, thank Harold Kavli for recommending you as well, because he uh, mm-hmm. has been on the show a couple of times and he, he gave you a you know, massive recommendation. So I'm so excited to talk mm-hmm. to you. But yeah, who are you? What do you do? And, uh, and, uh, and how did you get interested in stoicism? 
my name is Glenn Veus and I'm an associate professor teaching primarily New Testament or Ancient Greek at a theological school in Oslo uh, called MF, Norwegian School of Theology, uh, Religion and Society. Um, so I teach primarily I teach primarily language, the Greek language, but I use that language as a, as a door uh, pathway into the, the Greek philosophical culture heritage broadly. So through uh, my teaching in, in, in the Greek language, we, um, I try to introduce my students not only to the New Testament, but also to, to the Greek philosophers, um, primarily Stoicism, but also Platonism, Aristotelianism, and the other other schools, but primarily Stoicism. And I want to show them that um, the, the Christians didn't, um, since I, I teach primarily students of theology who are going to become ministers in churches in Norway, uh, I want to try to show them that um, Christianity didn't uh, arise in a vacuum. It uh, arose in a context where uh, they were surrounded by thinking, thinking and searching people, uh, primarily Stoics. So I'm very interested in the, in the, in the crossovers between Christianity and Stoicism. Hmm. Yeah, wonderful. Mm. And I'm, I'm very excited for this conversation because that's, that's exactly what I'm trying to figure out at the moment. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, what, what does amaze me is even just reading the Bible and then reading Stoicism, looking at the crossovers in the ideas, you know, the philosophy of both, uh, you know, the, the, both Stoicism and also of the Bible is, is just wonderful. You know, there's so many excellent crossovers there. And I wanted to start by asking you, so it, a lot of people, including myself until recently, um, don't really understand even what theology is. And we don't often talk about the theology of Stoicism. And so, you know, it's not really, it's, it's kind of something that, yeah, until recently, I didn't understand what it was, but I'd love for you to, you know, give your own definition. What is theology and, and why is it important? Yeah. Theology in Stoicism, I agree, it has in a way been overlooked, uh, uh, but it is very basic uh, for, for ancient Stoicism. Uh, in a way, sto theology is everything in ancient Stoicism. It is uh, uh, present uh, everywhere in, in Stoicism, not uh, always um, visible to see, but ingrained in the very structure of Stoicism, there is a conception of God, a kind of ultimate, ultimate being. Uh, when I teach my students about uh, ancient, who are primarily uh, Christian students, uh, trying to learn about the New Testament, I have to help them to see that the, the, the Stoic uh, view of God is a very different view of God, even though it has uh, so many parallels, at least in wording. Uh, but uh, the conception is very different, because in Stoicism, God is the name which the Stoics put on this ultimate um, rational principle which has made and ordered and structured everything we see around us, even ourselves. So God is a very elastic term for the Stoics. Uh, God, in a way, is the same as reason, which in, in Greek is logos, uh, and is the same as nature, which is physis in Greek. Uh, and in a way, God is also destiny, and it is providence. So God is a name where, uh, which can be, be bent uh, and stretched in all the directions. 
because but the basic thing is this um, notion of something which is responsible for the character and the shape and the structure of everything we see around us so in in that way god is omnipresent in in, uh, in all of stoicism uh, he's the the, the, for, the forming principle over everything i don't know how how technical we we should we should we should be but the, the stoics the divide on the most basic ontological level that they divide the the world into two categories the structuring principle the structuring principle uh, which gives shape to everything which is then god the reason uh, which is the active principle and the other principle is the passive principle principle which is the the the, the material aspect of of uh, reality so what God does, what the active principle does, is to impose uh, his structure on the passive principle, on matter, and shaping it to becoming uh, an actual uh, entity. So every, every single entity in, in, in the world, we as human beings, the animals, the trees, the, and water, etc., are basically uh, uh, on the utmost ontological level to be described as a combination of an active and a passive principle and mm. this active principle as i said is god so in, th in that way god is present in every single human being because god ultimately is the one responsible for for us being uh, being the kind of species that a human being uh, is in the same way that god is responsible for the animals being the kind of species they are because as the rational principle he has ordered and structured everything so that is the very basic uh, ontological notion of what God is. It's, it's the rational principle. But uh, I guess we will go, go into more detail soon about how, uh, for example, the, the Stoic, which I have worked most on, Epictetus, from the first century uh, CE, how he views uh, this God, because he is among the Stoics which uh, who speak very intimately and per personalistic about this God. Not all Stoics do that. Many Stoics speak about God as a kind of, de not detached, but at least a purely rational principle. But like Epictetus and some other philosophers in, in the Stoic tradition have a very intimate, personal way of speaking of, of this God. They actually love this God and cherish him higher than anything as a kind of personal relation. Mm. And, and, you know, reading your article before this, uh, you actually quote Epictetus a couple of times in there. And one of the passages that you quoted from, uh, you know, I was reading it and I was like, wow, you know, Epictetus almost seems evangelical in the way that he's teaching that we should mm. communicate or, or allow ourselves to be in communion with this, this, you know, stoic God or nature or the logos. Mm -hmm. um, what, what I'm interested in is, to what extent did somebody like Epictetus rely on that communication or that connection with the Stoic idea of God? Because, mm -hmm. you know, in Stoicism at the moment, especially in Western culture, I would say, uh, obviously there is the kind of view that, you know, we don't need the theology of, of Stoicism anymore. It's kind of outdated. You know, mm -hmm. we can purely see it as rationality. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to know, for someone like Epictetus, what was the relationship? How important was it to his mm. overall uh, teaching? Mm. That is a very good question. And I guess the scholars would, would, uh, would uh, differ on, on this topic. Uh, Epictetus, as I said, speaks, has a lot to say about God. He speaks about God all the time. 
and not uh, all the Stoics do that, but he, he, is, uh, he is one of the, those Stoics who speak most about God. And he ties into a tradition which goes back to Cleantes, the second head of the Stoic, uh, Stoic school, and then we're back in the, in the early, uh, early third century uh, BCE. Uh, so Cleantes also spoke about God uh, much in, 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 his, in, his, in his writings and in his teachings. But um, then we, we seem to have a, a long stretch in the Stoic, in the Stoic tradition where, where God, as you say, becomes more this purely rational principle. But Evictetus, he, he, uh, he reverts to this uh, more personalistic view of God, which, which also we have in, in Cleantes. And, and, and he goes much, in a way also much further. So Epictetus uh, speaks to God, he thinks about God, he writes about God, and God is present everywhere in what he, what he, what he uh, has to say. Uh, as you mentioned, I wrote an article about the prayers in Epictetus because he, he includes many prayers in his, in his, uh, in his writings. And, um, and in those prayers, uh, uh, he divides his prayers into, uh, as I, I divide his prayers into, into legitimate prayers, what, what prayers a Stoic is entitled to or should pray, and also prayers which a Stoic should not pray. Mm. And uh, Epictetus, when he prays to God, he prays uh, to, a, to a God which is very dedicated to the project of becoming the person you are meant to be. So to Epictetus, God is a very supportive God, not a detached God, not a disinterested God, but a very supportive God, which has, which has given him and every other human being the resources available or necessary to, to become the person you were meant to be. So prayer for Epictetus is primarily to, to thank God for all the resources he has given to a person uh, to become um, the ideal uh, of what he was supposed to be. And the a kind of prayer which you should not um, pray to God, according to Epictetus, is complaints. You should not complain to God that your life is in this or that uh, circumstance because God has given you the resources to handle all those different circumstances. So God is a supportive God. He has given you all you need uh, and he has given you uh, uh, your mental cap capacity, your rational uh, identity to, to handle the, the difficulties you, uh, you, may, you may encounter. And then you could, of course, ask what is Epictetus' basic notion of this God ontologically? Is he really an external God? which actually can, can intervene in a person's life and, and help him. Uh, some scholars, perhaps Christian-oriented scholars, have, uh, have interpreted Epictetus uh, to, some, something like, to, to saying something like that, that Epictetus visions an almost a Christian external God, a creator God, which uh, can intervene. But uh, myself, and I guess most other uh, Stoic uh, scholars, uh, tend to see that Epictetus' view of God as basically uh, in line with ordinary ancient Stoicism, seeing, uh, seeing God as another word for the, for the immanent structuring rational principle in, in reality. But, the, but 
what what makes Epictetus stand out is the way he speaks about this immanent rational principle, because he uses language which is much more personalistic, much more intimate uh, than several than all, almost all of the other Stoics. So, in terms of language, he comes very close to describing God as an external, benevolent father figure who actually can intervene and help people in in their in, the, in, in their struggles. Mm. I don't think he actually has that that view, but his wording uh, when when he speaks about God has that tone, this very personalistic, intimate tone. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you read the stuff that he talks about, you know, when he talks about prayer and mm-hmm. like I said earlier, it almost seems evangelical because he, he literally says in that passage, you know, for once in your life, you know, I, I can't remember the exact words, but, but it was almost like relinquish control, you know, look up to the heavens and scream mm-hmm. out, you know, hey, um, and, and, that that's so interesting to me is the, the relationship that that Epictetus fostered with this whatever it was you know that he was talking about, mm-hmm. and and when, when we talk about prayer, it kind of sounds as though what Epictetus is trying to say is, uh, ask God not to intervene but to allow you to use the resources at hand to the best of your abilities, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that is basically what he sees as the legitimate uh, uh, way of a Stoic to, to go about praying. Uh, not asking for an external intervention, because I don't think he has actually uh, sees God as an external God. So mm-hmm. he he's not praying for an intervention. He is praying in a way, and I, and I make that point in my article. He his prayer. His, his prayers are a kind of self-admonition, self-pedagogical uh, way of of spurring himself on in the in the in the correct direction. But he, but addressing himself to God, uh, seeing God as a, as a kind of supportive asset on the way. But this God is in you know, basically nothing else than the resources laid down in him by 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 by, by nature. Mm. So it kind of, kind of, in a way, it's a kind of self-prayer. It is, it is addressed in wording to an external kind of external God, but uh, basically, it's a kind of, kind of self-prayer, admonishing himself to uh, to become uh, the one, the person he was meant to be, and to use the resources which nature and God has given him. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that's so interesting, and and I'd love to know. Uh, what is what is the relationship between his core principle of the dichotomy of control and that relationship of of man and nature because for mm. for the past few months as i've really thought about that idea i've i've kind of begun to think that too often we focus so much on the you know i can control this part so we focus a lot on yeah i can control that so i'm going to control it and i'm going to crush it but I actually think that there's such an important element of relinquishing control of everything that you can't control. Right. But because mm-hmm. if you really think about it and you go into the depths of your own mind and you try to think, well, what is that one thing that I can control? Mm-hmm. I mean, it gets pretty deep, pretty fast. And there's, there's, mm-hmm. there's not much in there that you can control. So mm-hmm. what I'm interested in is, is 
yeah, what was the relationship of the dichotomy of control to the theology of, of um, Stoicism? And, yeah. and is there an importance there of actually relinquishing control to what is nature's job to control mm-hmm. and of actually just focusing on the one gift that we have or the spark of divinity from nature that we have, which is rationality? Sorry, yeah. I, I, I hope that, sent, that, uh, that question makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, for, for Epictetus and for, for all the Stoics, but especially for Epictetus, uh, the benevolence of God primarily shows in the way God has structured everything. Because God, and, or nature, or reason, has in the, the Epictetus uh, divided all of reality and all of human existence into two basic categories. And as you mentioned, it is what is up to us, what, what we can control, and what is not up to us. That is all the things which we cannot control. Uh, and up to us, what we ha- have under our principal control is to Epictetus only our preferential choices, our value system. So we can decide what, what and how we want to respond to everything that happens around us and to us. So our value system is under our control and completely and solely under our control. But everything else is to Epictetus principally not under our control. Our wealth, our health, our family, uh, our freedom or, or slavery, or social political standing, all these categories are principally not under our control. And this Epictetus sees as uh, an aspect of the benevolence of God because that means that uh, the categories of good and evil are solely up to us because the Epictetus good and evil does only concern what what is up to us, our ethical values, our our value system. So no one can, and he says says this uh, 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 right outspoken, only I myself alone can pro- can procure me myself any good or get myself involved in any evil. But uh, for all all the rest, I am kind of uh, at half half hazard. I, I can all I can always uh, lose my my income. My 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 family can die. I can get ill. So all these things are principally under not under my control. But that does not affect my dignity as a human being. My dignity as a human being is solely how I respond to all these external um, external incidents. And that, to, to, to many moderns, that, that sounds very very defensive and very and kind of, kind of uh, brutal philosophy. But, but, but to Epictetus, this is an aspect of the benevolence of God. Because this... And here we have to here we have to to remember where Epictetus comes from. He comes uh, he, he he was a slave, grew up as a slave uh, in Rome. So he has seen and experienced on his body what it means not to have control over his own body, his family, his friends, and uh, and his reputation. All that is under the control of his slave master. So we have to see where, uh, have in mind where Epictetus comes from. And that means that this structuring of God uh, in these two categories, what is up to us in, in, uh, and not up to us, is for Epictetus an, an uh, expression of the benevolence of God. He has made it possible even for a slave to 
live in dignity, no matter what he is being, um, the strain he's being put under by his slave master. He can always respond by, uh, by keeping his uh, self-dignity, even though his master um, does not keep his self-dignity. So Epictetus as a slave explains a lot, I think, to what, uh, why, why he cherishes this, this dichotomy of what is up to us and what is not up to us. And he loves this distinction. This is, this is his gospel. This is when I, when I, when I try to speak about, to, to my students of Christian theology, I speak about the, the Christian gospel. Then I try to show them that there's also another gospel in, the, in ancient philosophy. And this is the gospel of, of Stoicism, which the slave Epictetus has found as his path to freedom, his path to an authentic human life. And, and theology, uh, how God has structured um, uh, reality, is for him um, the basic of this gospel. Mm. Yeah, and, and I'd love to jump into that, the kind of uh, connections that you see, the differences that you see between the Stoic theology and the, the Christian theology. And I, I want to I also kind of give people some definitions here as well, because I think that that's important, you know, especially somebody from, say, Australia or someone from America. We have a very different view of God because we've only been really, uh, we've only been shown one side of the Christian sphere. You know, it's like we, we only really know a little bit. And so for a lot of people in America, for example, if you say God, they're immediately going to think of all of the aspects of Christianity that they dislike. And they're going to think of all of the prosperity gospel preachers. And they're going to think of, you know, all, all of these hypocrites. And, you know, that's not what we're always talking about here. There's so many different definitions of God, which is why when we're talking about stoicism, I often say nature, because that's kind of what they wanted us to live in agreement with. Um, and, and it's interchangeable, but, uh, can we also just, just talk quickly, what is your definition of theology, um, as a study? Because one thing that I read the other day, which was just so beautiful is, uh, they used to see theology. They said, uh, um, I'm going to butcher this, but they said that theology was the, the mother of all sciences because it was discovering, you know, the origin of everything. Um, mm -hmm. and philosophy was her handmaiden, right? So philosophy and theology go hand in hand, but mm -hmm. what is theology when somebody comes to your class and they have no idea what it is? What do you, do you <laughs> define it as? Yeah. Uh, uh, most of the students coming to my class, uh, obviously they already Christian. know. <laughs> so, so they, they have that Christian understanding of theology. Um, uh, but, uh, I think you're right. Uh, theology uh, for the Stoics would be the, the searching out of the very fundamentals of everything that exists. So theology is, you, you don't go any deeper than theology for, for the Stoics. That is, uh, and some of the ancient Stoics uh, had actually theology as the final and last point in the, on their, curric on their curric curriculum, because that was the, the kind of the essence, the, the crowning of, the, of, it, of it all. Uh, you learned about nature and you did about man and ethics and, uh, and logic and then finally came theology which which encapsulated everything putting everything into place mm. so um, so you, you you may well use that broad definition of theology theology is searching out of the uh, searching out the depths of everything that exists mm. and I guess also a Christian would would uh, would uh, subscribe to that definition because for a Christian of course 
God is the ultimate source of everything that exists and has, uh, and His will is is uh, is the is the reason for things being uh, in existence in existence at all. Yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate you kind of defining that for us. And I find that really fascinating. And and when I finally learned what theology actually is, I was thinking, man, this is, you're right. You can't go any deeper than that. It's like, you can't go deeper than because, because, because it goes beyond what science currently understands and it tries to understand the limits of what we know. And, and I think that what's so helpful about that idea for me and for a lot of people is being able to accept that there is so much that we don't know and mm-hmm. that we almost can't even know, right? There's so much that it, that is limiting us in our understanding. And if mm-hmm. we imagine just for a second that we are the most powerful, the most knowledgeable things on this planet, I mean, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Um, like there is so much that is, 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 is bigger than us. Um, and, and so, yeah, what do you see as the similarities and the differences between the Christian theology and Stoic theology, as if we can sum that up in one answer, but (laughs) yeah, yeah. Um, I guess the, uh, the most basic difference is that in, in, in the biblical tradition, uh, the old and new Testament, the Hebrew scriptures and the new Testament, God is clearly pictured as an external God, something different than the rest of existence. He was he existed before anything material existed, and he is the one responsible for everything that exists, but he is not as himself a part of the physical physical world. That is a is the main difference uh, to the Stoic view, because in Stoicism we, we don't have this kind of uh, dualistic view of reality, God on the on the one hand and the physical world on the other. Sto- the Stoics are monistic. They're monists. Everything basically is one. So when, uh, when, when you spoke about the active and the passive principles uh, at the start of our, our talk, these two principles are in a way only to be divided uh, in, our, in our conceptions and, and in, our, in our mind. Basically, they are one because also the active principle is a kind of material principle. God is in a way not an immaterial uh, um, uh, spiritual uh, category for the Stoics. He is uh, matter in its most uh, fine and and nuanced way. So so, um, for for the Stoics, God is not something different from the physical universe. He is present there uh, within everything. Some would say that it, it is pantheism. Others would say that it is panentheism uh, with aspects of theism. If your viewers are familiar with that, with those, with those terms. But it is at least not dualistic in the Christian mm. tradition. So that is the big, big difference between a Christian and a Stoic uh, view of God. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, so it's basically, you know, to a stoic, everything is one, including you and me, and we have sparks of that divinity within us. Um, and that's another question I want to get to later as well. But then for Christians, it's obviously God is separate to everything here and obviously plays a larger role in making things work or, or intervening, you might say. Um, so, sorry, go on. Yeah. And that, that is what we, uh, to, just to revert to, to the topic of prayer again, 
this basic uh, difference in the theology uh, also plays out, of course, in, in, the, in the difference between uh, Christian and a Stoic view of prayer. Because in Christianity, or in the, in the New Testament, and also in the Old Testament, people, of course, pray to this external God, hoping that he would, in, would intervene, and often he does, and sometimes he mm. does not. But they hope that he will intervene and do something in the physical universe that he has created, but, but, but of which he is not himself a part. Um, but of course, in Stoicism, in this there is no external God. So the one you pray to is basically the the aspect of God which is inside yourself, uh, the resources which nature or God has put uh, in you. So the mm. topic of prayer actually is a very in inter interesting topic because there the differences, the practical implications of the theology becomes very obvious. Uh, how are you supposed to relate to this God? And prayer is is a very fascinating topic. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And and so when it comes to uh, when it comes to prayer, um, I'd like to understand the way that. So so, am I right in saying that for Christians, a, a prayer, or at least in the theology of Christianity, a prayer is very much a call for God to intervene in, in one's life. Whereas mm. for the Stoics, the prayer is, uh, for, um, is it almost like for God to continue doing things to make everything work? However, to allow you to, uh, to be the most rational, uh, player in the game of life. Right. Yeah. 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 I think so. Uh, I, I can use I can use a very famous Christian prayer, uh, which I think many of of the of the listeners will be familiar with, uh, which is sounded in the, in the, uh, in the Christian service every every Sunday. Which is the Kyrie eleison, mm. uh, the the phrase "Lord um, have mercy," which is a quotation from the New Testament. Um, the, the the sick people uh, who who meet Jesus. Uh, shout this this um, this uh, prayer to him, Lord have mercy, and in, in a, in a uh, this is a kind of epitome of of what the whole New Testament gospel is all about. Uh, the New Testament uh, gospel is about a God who wants people to come to him and shout out their distress, hoping that he will intervene and expecting that he will intervene because he has promised that he will be a God who does actually intervene and who wants to intervene uh, on people's behalf. So Kyrie eleison, this prayer, is the kind of core message of what Jesus came to tell humanity, that God is interested in your distress. And interestingly, Epictetus, he has the same phrase, and I, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure that he, he does not have it from the Christians, even though he, know about the, uh, he knows about the Christians. He does not seem to have any uh, familiarity with, mm. with their writings or with their, with their core doctrines. So I don't have, think he, had, he has this phrase from the Christians, but he use, actually he uses the same phrase. But, but, to, but to him, the Kyrie eleison shout is something which a Stoic should not say to God. There is no reason for a Stoic to shout, Lord, have mercy on me to God, because God has given you the resources to, um, to, uh, to, to handle your life without uh, uh, uttering those kinds of distressful words. So um, God is, is the one who has made the Kyrie eleison shout superfluous. You don't need that shout anymore, because mm. you, as you also mentioned, you are 
everything in person is a fragment of God. Epictetus uses that phrase. You, you, you have it in you, a fragment of God. You have all the resources available to, to handle your life and do not, not, don't need to shout your distress to God. Mm. So, so if, if there's no need to shout distress to God, is prayer for the Stoics almost like a meditation going inwardly to yourself? Like it's not necessarily asking for anything. It's just an opportunity for you to pause in the moment and learn more about yourself. Yeah. That is exactly how, how I, how, how I look at on prayer in Epictetus and, and the Stoics uh, in general. It's kind of, kind of meditation. You, you speak to God, but actually you, what you do is to meditate on the basic truths about uh, how God has structured everything. So you are ex- uh, admonishing yourself to, to, to live by the principles which God has laid down in nature. And Epictetus, he has, uh, he has several rather beautiful examples of prayer uh, uh, of what he sees as the a legitimate, legitimate uh, uh, prayer by a Stoics. Just to take one example, he, he's, he says to his students, um, uh, what he, he tells the student what he hopes he will be able to say to God in prayer on the day he is going to die. So in a way, he transposes himself to his deathbed and he says to students, this is what I hope that I will be able to say to God when, when I die. And then he come, then comes this prayer. Uh, and, and, the, and it goes on something like this. Have I ever used my, my mind uh, or my rational principles to something which I, which I was not supposed to, to, um, to use them? Have I ever, have I ever, ever complained to you about uh, my circumstances? Have I ever, ever sought things which were not under my, uh, my control? Have I ever, ever any, any time opposed you? And on, of course, the, the answer to all these questions is no, I've never done that. And then he goes on to become rather personal. I, and he says, I became sick and ill when it was your will. But I, uh, and also other people did that. He says, but I did it on purpose, voluntarily. So he, he accepts what life gives him. And he sees it and interprets it as given by God. Also, illness, uh, which he himself experiences, is interpreted as given by God. And that, that is something which befalls everyone. But I, he says, I received all this willingly. And that is very important. That is the whole point. He is not a slave anymore who has to suffer things involuntarily. He is a free Stoic philosopher who accepts his his destiny willingly. So uh, even even illness, uh, which we see as something cruel and, and, and bad, even illness, he he leads back to God as something God has given, but he doesn't see that as something which he should complain to God about. He sees it as, um, as something that God has given him, but also, also given him the resources to handle that illness. Mm. Yeah, this this is this is super fascinating stuff because uh, I've also experienced this kind of talk in, say, meditations. Marcus Aurelius, you know, yeah. he's he very much. There's a lot of passages in there that I only really began to understand recently, where he's talking about, you know, just the superficial nature of attaching yourself to anything 
in this lifetime. You know, it's mm. like imagine the vastness of time and you've got this tiny little slither and you think you're going to make a big difference in the way that things go, right? Mm. And, and he talks about, you know, you haven't got long to free yourself. And that actually was a revelation to me, what you just said there, this idea that truly becoming free to somebody like Epictetus was almost uh, understanding that, that, that you are, what, what did, what did Epictetus talk about when, when we discuss the idea of like you and me? So what am I, and what is it to say that, let me, let me phrase this question in a way that is going to be understandable for the audience and for yourself. Um, <laughs> what is me and what is I to the Stoics? Is it the soul? Is it the connection with the soul and the body? Is it God? What, what is it when they talk about you or me? Yeah. Epictetus, to, to focus on him, he uh, is among the Stoics who go the farthest in dividing uh, the eye uh, or uh, human being between the soul which he then sees as the, as the real eye and the body he uses very dualistic and dichotomic language in describing um, the soul versus the, the body uh, he's not he's he's he, he doesn't picture the body as something negative which some uh, other ancient um, uh, traditions of thought uh, did, but uh, but he has a very very rough language when it comes to the unimportance of the body, and he has been criticized for that uh, many times. Uh, and uh, at least uh, the last fifty years, uh, many academics uh, criticizes uh, Epictetus for this um, this um, negligence of the body and his. Mm. Um, and his belittling of, of the of the pain and sufferings which which ancient slaves experienced on, on their bodies. Uh, so to Epictetus, uh, as you said, the, the the I, the me, is primarily the soul, and it's it, and it's and, and, the, and the Stoics divided uh, the soul in, in different parts again, uh, and the really important part of the soul was the leading part, which is in Greek is the hegemonikon. Uh, which means leading, so uh, mm. and that is basically the, the your, your reasoning faculty. But this reasoning faculty uh, 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 rules over everything that that's, that takes takes place in your soul. Also, your your senses are ruled by by your by your re, your reasoning faculty. So that means that everything you experience should be or, and always is um, uh, put under the, um, the supervision of your rationality. Mm. So yes, you, you're basically right. I think for Epictetus, the I is basically uh, your rationality. But this rationality, even though it is made by nature and in, in that way is kind of um, uh, perfect, it needs to be trained. Mm. It always needs to be trained. So this I, this, uh, this soul is never perfect. It all, all, always needs to be to be led in the right in the right direction, to mm. be formed to, to be in progress. So many other many other of the ancient Stoics they talk about um, the the ideal wise man, the ideal sage, the sophos. Epictetus, on the other hand, does not talk very much about this ideal sage, this sophos. He talks about all the rest of us, our ordinary people who are striving to 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 progress, to become gradually better. 
so he he um, he has more, much more to, much more advice to give to to, to the rest of us than uh, humanity at large, and he does not speak about so much about the ideal few who we actually reach the goal. And I, I, I guess he doesn't see that that that, it, that the goal is um, is possible to reach. He uses Socrates and Diogenes the Cynic as his two philosophical heroes, and they in a way have reached that kind of goal. But he himself. Um, is only progressing, trying to become better each day. Mm. And and I didn't even realize how much of a a you know absolute uh, almost yeah like a godlike figure somebody like Diogenes was until mm. I actually started reading about his life mm. and learning about how even Alexander the Great said you know if I wasn't born Alexander the Great mm-hmm. I would have loved to have been born Diogenes and. Yeah. And, you know, the, to be the kind of person who can just give up everything mm. and still be happy. But even that idea of being that person who gives up everything in order to find true eudaimonia, mm. that's an idea that's in the Bible as well, right? Like in order to be a Christian, you need to yeah. be willing to give up mm. everything. If If you're willing to give up everything, that's when you you receive that kind of revelatory power right yeah yeah that's a good that's a good point and um, i think that uh, what you point out now the the ethics of stoicism and christianity that is where these two traditions actually meet the most they do not mm. meet so much in the theology because we, as we spoke about they have very different views about what god actually is but they meet more, uh, more fundamentally in their view of how a person should uh, should lead um, his or her life in, in ethics. What is, what are the true values of a human life? Is it the material um, uh, values, or is it uh, the spiritual or, or ethical values? And the Stoics and the Christians definitely agree it is the ethical values: what you do to yourself and what and what you do to others. Um, so. Eth- Ethics is really the point where Christians uh, and the Stoics um, uh, had common ground in the, in the, in the, in the early, early centuries. Mm. And as you say, the, 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 also for the Christians, the, uh, to give up everything is something you should be willing to do in order to, to, um, to uh, gain the, 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 the salvation of Christ, not to be held back by the, this um, imagined values of wealth and property and so forth that you be, be willing to give up everything to, to ab- obtain this single most value um, the, the gospel of Christ mm. yeah and and I'd love to talk about the ethics and the virtue side of things because obviously the Stoics taught that virtue is the only good and that's that's an extremely freeing kind of uh, way to view the world. It's like, okay, well, the only good that I should work towards is is virtue. But when when I was thinking about this last year, when I was kind of transitioning back into the podcast, doing more episodes, I was I was really wondering how the Stoics think about attaining the right judgment about virtue, right? Because for Christians. It, it's it's you know you have the word of god you have the bible that's where you can learn how to be virtuous right uh, and through personal revelation as well uh, and you can correct me on any of that but um but for the stoics i haven't yet figured out did they believe that virtues 
come from God or nature? Did they always exist? Is virtue something that has always existed or is it something that we as human beings make up for ourselves? Uh, I think the Stoics would say that virtues are ingrained in, in nature. They, mm. they, uh, in a way, uh, and we, we can go back to, to, to God again, and theology again, because everything starts there. Mm. God as reason, as logos, cannot be anything else but good. You cannot, reason in itself, logic in itself, mm. cannot entail something cruel, something negative. So because it, it's it, all it, that it, there it, is, right? It's, yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. very world that we live in. Yeah, reason being structured, being system, being order, cannot uh, contain anything base, anything bad, anything cruel. It must be good. So God is basically good. And since we are ingrained with this God, we are also good. But we don't all always live out and practice this good. And that, that is why we need training. We need to train to become what we have always been intended to be. So for Epictetus, becoming a human being is to return to the to the to the theological intentions uh, which uh, from God, what God has always intended a human being to be. So, a human being, the Greek is anthropos. A human being for Epictetus is a normative term. We are all human beings, but we can lose our human beingness by behaving badly. And he says that uh, he says that very directly by by doing adultery with uh, with, your, with your wife with your neighbor's wife by by uh, seeking just rich uh, on rich, riches or, or punishing your slave you are destroying the anthropos in you you are not longer entitled to call yourself by this uh, beautiful name anthropos human being if you do practice these things because it is a part of your ingrained nature to be good and that is the only true value which you should seek in life to 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 possess and and be and become the human being that in nature has intended you to be so virtue has always been there and it is the start and it is the goal and on the way where we are in the middle of that and we are striving to become the goal which we are from the start intended to be yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense now because it's it's almost as if um our job is to move away from the animalistic body side of our, our being and try and listen to or tap into or train the part of us that already has virtue. And the, uh, about a week ago, I was having a conversation with one of my friends and he's read a bit of stoicism, but, but he's, he like me is very much, you know, questioning all these things at the moment, trying to really figure out what life is. And uh, we had this conversation. He started to describe to me this theory and he, he said, you know, you're probably going to think this is crazy, but I'm going to give you this theory and I want, I want your thoughts on it. And he started saying, you know, uh, it, it's, it's almost as if uh, in life we are kind of wrestling between, there's like a battle going on between the body, which is like an animal and the mind, which is like, uh, you know, everything that is good about us. Right. And, and he's describing this. And I said to him, you're literally describing stoicism because, <laughs> because it's, it is kind of like a negotiation or a wrestling between the body, which wants all of the animalistic desires and pleasures and all that sort of stuff. And the mind, which if you can listen to it and tap into it well enough, the soul, 
you can start to move in the direction of better virtue, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that that is a that's a good good uh, good picture. This um, the kind of the the uh, bestial aspects of of, the, of, the, of our body. But the interesting thing is that Epictetus and the Stoics they do not blame the body mm. for this uh, for uh, for uh, for it uh, being as it is. They blame always the soul because everything you do is filtered to the hegemonicon in your soul, your rational principle. So the body, in a way, does not do anything on its own. It is you with your value system which make the body do as, as it does. So if, if your body longs for sexual pleasures, it is because you, in your soul, has decided that this is the value you want to pursue. Mm-hmm. And if your body craves for food, that is because you in your value system, in your soul, has said that to yourself that this is the value which you want to pursue. But these values can be changed. You, it is up to you to decide the value system which you want to live by. So you can dismiss this craving for sexuality or for food or for wealth or whatever, because it is up to you to create your value system. And again, that is the, you hear the slave talking here. It is, he has become his own slave master. He is not longer uh, uh, made to be obedient to external masters. He is uh, the self-authoritative uh, master in his own life. Yeah, yeah. Dan, that sounds like some freedom that I think we all really, really want. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I only have a couple more questions for you. Well, well, that's an understatement. I have many more questions for you, but I want to be <laughs> respectful of your time. Um, the, the first one has to do, and I'm just going to write down here Logos because I really want to make sure that I ask you about that after this. But in, in Marcus Aurelius, he, he, he talks about this idea of, you know, don't worry about how things are going to turn out because today you're going to face the day with the same reasoning powers that you had yesterday and the day before. And, and there's a lot of phrases that he used that really make you think, yeah, I, I don't need to worry about what's happening out there. Obviously I need to worry about what's happening in here because what, what happens out there will work out for my good. If I can focus on what is fundamentally important. Mm. Um, my own personal journey in the past few months has been one of trying to look at all of the things that I can release from my life so that I have more time for focusing on the very, very important things that actually make a difference. Mm. Um, and this is an idea that's, talked about in the Bible as well with the the passage, um, consider the lilies of the field, you know, like, mm-hmm. Hey, God's going to provide for nature and mm-hmm. you're not separate to nature. So why do you think that he hasn't provided for you when you're like the most incredible creature in nature? Right. Yeah. Uh, is, is there a crossover here between having sort of what I call the stoic cosmic confidence, you know, this idea that mm-hmm. things will work out for good if you focus on what's most important and the, the, the Christian idea of, of God will provide for you if you just focus on, on, on him and doing, doing good. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is one of the clear crossovers between Christianity and Stoicism. This notion of, of God or nature uh, always leading uh, to, to the beneficence of, uh, of the one uh, who has... Um, decided upon on, on the right uh, right system of values. Um, 
So I think that that is very, very correct. And the, and the passage you mentioned from Matthew 6, about the lilies of the field, that it's, it's very, I think the, the Stoics will subscribe to that. How can you, how, how can you um, be so anxious about your material well-being when you see how God takes care of all the rest of nature? He will, he will, he will not, never forget you. That Epictetus will subscribe to that kind of, that kind of overall uh, cosmic confidence, as, as you must have put it. Mm. And and when I think about that, the biggest argument that somebody could put up against an idea like that is, well, you know, what about poverty? What about horrible situations in life? You know, there's not everything is perfect. And if you just leave it up to the world, you know, nothing is just good. But is it almost a question of aims and goals? Because like for, for Epictetus, his only aim, it seems, was to be the master of his soul, to be completely free by going only inward, right? And and that was his aim. Uh, do you think that the the different aims that we have in, say, you know, Western culture, consumerism, you know, like uh, I, I want all of this stuff, does that get in the way of us seeing the true power of that kind of that kind of theory? Yeah, yeah, uh, I think so. I mean, should also remember, and that is this is an aspect of of the, of of, uh, of, uh, of God again, the theology again. As we said, since since God uh, is logos, order, structure, reason for the Stoics, that means that not only uh, uh, is it good in the terms that you should seek uh, for yourself what is the true good, but you sh- you in order to become this, this true stoic, you have to do good to others. So it goes both ways. So Epictetus and the other stoics have often been accused of being ethical ego- egoists. Only think about, think about themselves as long as they themselves have this inner, inner peace, uh, the, the stoic peace. Uh, they, they don't, don't care about the, the rest of humanity and the rest of nature. But that, that is, that is plainly, plainly wrong. Because the stoics would be the first to stand up to defend the rights of others and 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 to um, to help the others in their needs, mm. because that was the flip side of the coin. You should not only be good to yourself in terms of finding the right uh, the right value system. You have these values have to be lived out to the benefit of others. So so the Stoics were famous for being being the ones who spoke out against cruelty. And Epictetus has several examples of these stoic heroes who, in, in defiance of threats from the emperor and all other important people, stood up to, for, for, for the truth and for, for, the, for, the, for the benefit of others. So mm. the Stoics have this kind, also have this, this collective social responsibility as a part of their sense of being a good human being. It is not possible to be a good human being by living solely on your own you have to benefit others yeah this this now makes a lot of sense to me it, it's really um yeah that that's a brilliant way to think about it because it's almost as if okay well why are you asking why god is doing all of this poverty and stuff like you created this you're the humans you're the ones not taking care of everybody mm-hmm. that you could yeah. take care of and you have the spark of the divinity which means that you have a responsibility to be a cosmopolitan to go and take mm. care of these people who need it you know so stop blaming god blame yourself go do it mm. that's a yeah. that's a brilliant way to think about it and um you mentioned the logos there we've talked about it a couple of times in in this conversation 
the logos has been kind of one of the, the really fascinating um, areas of discussion for me. I'm really trying to get my head around it because mm-hmm. obviously in the, in the Bible, you know, there is that verse, uh, you know, God was the word and the word was good. You know, so we, we talk about how, how um, you know, the, the logos is our ability to use words to describe the world around us to become smarter. And, and then I think about, you know, studies that have showed that people in jail uh, on average have lower vocabularies than people who don't go to jail. Right. So it's like, you think about that and it's like, well, does that mean that if I am able to just learn more and more words and to be able to put those words into intelligible sentences that help me to understand the world and to understand how to act in the world, is the word the key towards uh, developing greater virtue? Um, and, and I think about that and, 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 and could you describe the way that you see the logos? Cause it, we could just say it's the same as nature and everything like that, but there's something different about it, right? Yeah. Uh, logos, as you say, is a, is a very complex uh, yeah. term. And, it, and it, it, goes, it goes to the, to the heart of all ancient Greek philosophy, and I guess all philosophy uh, in, in whatever context. Because logos for the Greeks is so elastic, as we started talking about uh, earlier. It can be tied or, or, or pulled in, in all kinds of directions because it encompasses everything. It has to do with rationality, it has to do with structure, it has to do, has to do with order, it has to do with works. Uh, uh, and I, 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 and I, can use, I can use the, 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 the system or, or, the, or, the, or, the, or the structure of philosophy which, which the Stoics themselves used in ancient times. They, they, they divided the field of, the, of philosophy into three parts. It was the, the study of physics and the study of logics and the study of ethics. So the, the physics is when you try to, when, when you try to understand the, the, the physical nature around us, um, the, the nature as a whole. And then we have, have um, and then we have the, the, the ethics when we try to understand the, the joint communion, uh, community life of people living together, what, is, what, what should be uh, the way we live together. And then we have, of course, logic, how our minds, how our brains function. And what ties all these three fields together is, of course, logos, because the Stoics see the same kind of structure and order and system in, the, in, in nature at large, that is physics, and also in the kind of structured life human beings should live, uh, live together, that is ethics, and also in kind of structure which reigns in a human being, in our minds and in, in, in our bodies, then that is, that is logic. And there are many subdivisions yeah, for all of these uh, three basic divisions again. But, but the point is that logos is the thing that ties everything together. There is structure, there is order in everything. And then we see how this logos becomes a very, very diverse term, which, 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 uh, which ties together all of the all the reality for, 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 for the Stoics. And as you mentioned, the, the words are very important for the Stoics. They, they are, I think they are the, the, the branch of philosophy which made the, the science of grammar. It was, it was the Stoics that, that, that invented the, the, the science of grammar. And trying to understand the, log, the, the, the logical structure of, of human speech, of human discourse. And I also found very deep meaning in, in individual words. Words did not have their form 
by accident. It was always some kind of hidden philosophical meaning in the etymology of words. Mm-hmm. And just to, 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 to do an example, for, for example, the, the, the name Zeus is not a, a, a random name for, for, the, for the highest god. He must be termed Zeus. And then they, they use the inflection of the, of the word Zeus to, to, uh, to make their point. Because in the accusative, I don't know if, you're, if your listeners or viewers are familiar with, with inflection languages, but nouns in ancient Greek could be inflected in different, in different uh, cases. Uh, and um, and uh, the, na- the name Zeus, when, he, when, he, uh, when his name c- uh, comes in another um, uh, case, namely named the accusative, it can have two forms. It can be, it can be dia, which is then is, is the same name, Zeus, but it's just in a, another case. But then the Stoics see here a connection to another word, which is, which is dia, which means through or because of. And then the Stoics thought, oh, Zeus must be named Zeus, or then dia, as I said, in accusative, because then he is the reason, the because of element of why everything exists. He is the mm. one through which everything exists. So they found they found deep meaning in actual words. So words are not random. They are hidden. There, there is hidden etymological philosophical meaning in all kinds of words. So the stories are incredibly interesting, uh, trying to see logos being a part of uh, not only on the on the on the on the big uh, big scale, but also in down to individual minute words. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's such fascinating stuff, and I'm very interested in this. And the the way that I kind of think about it is, I mean, bring it to a very practical modern sense. It's like if you don't understand language, then you're not going to get very far in this world, and you're not going to understand mm-hmm. that much. Um, but but let's say you learnt all of the vocabulary or the logos of financials and accounting. Well, you would all of a sudden have very many excellent abilities to to handle your wealth correctly. And let's mm. say you learned the logos or the words of law, then you would be able to put forward an excellent argument. And that's that's mm. why to the Stoics, logic was so important because it was our ability to use words effectively in the world. Um, and and yeah, that that that's such a fascinating topic. But yeah. you know, Glenn, I want to thank you so much. This has just been seriously one of my favorite conversations ever i've really enjoyed this and uh, i hope that you'll come back on the podcast many more times to to share your wisdom thank you for having me of course thank you so much for listening to this episode of the practical stoic podcast if you'd like to sign up for email updates join my patreon meetup groups that we hold weekly or if you'd like to offer feedback or suggestions for future guests or topics on the show and you can head to simonjedrew.com. There you'll also find information about how we can work one-on-one together with my alignment coaching, based around the philosophical principles found in Stoicism. Finally, if you are on Facebook, then I'd love to see you in our group, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But hey, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I'll talk to you next time.